I'm pleased to introduce Susana Cejas. She's a freelance journalist and TV producer based in Mexico City who has produced for CBS News, 60 Minutes, HTNet, World Report, and Dan Rather Reports. Previously, she was a Knight International Journalism Fellow at Televisa, where she trained Mexican journalists to use Mexico's access to information law in their, in their investigative reporting and worked at the BBC. She has also reported for Gato Pardo, The Times of London, Radio New Zealand, CBC News, PBS NewsHour, Radio Mexico Internacional, Voice of America, Slate, and many others. She also has an incredibly cool sort of English-Mexican accent going on. Uh, please give a warm welcome to Susana Cejas. Well, it's great to be in L.A., and thanks, Gregory, for asking me to moderate and curate tonight's event. I'd like to introduce our panelists, first of all. Um, right to the end here, to my left, is Ana Maria Salazar. She was born in Tucson, Arizona, and grew up in Hermosillo in Sonora State in Mexico. Ana Maria hosts Mexico's English-language radio program Imagen News, and the weekly TV show in Spanish called Seguridad Total, or Total Security, and it's on TV Azteca's Grupo Salinas Channel 40. Very much worth the watch. Ana Maria writes a weekly column for El Universal and is the author of several books. Prior to her work in the media, Ana Maria worked at the Pentagon as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Drug Enforcement Policy and at the White House under President Clinton as Special Envoy for the Americas. So, in addition to her work in the media, Ana Maria also heads Grupo Salazar, an international consulting firm that specializes on negotiation and mediation training. And as if that weren't enough, she also has two children. Welcome, Ana Maria. Right next to Anna Maria is Reed Johnson. He's a general science, arts, and culture reporter for the LA Times. And from 2004 to 2008, he was the LA Times Latin America culture correspondent. He was based in Mexico City, where he covered arts and culture throughout Mexico, Central and South America. Welcome, Reed. And here's Angela Kuterga. She's a border bureau chief for Bilo Television's 20 stations and three regional cable networks. She covers the southwest border and interior of Mexico on air and online. Angela was born in Mexico City and was raised in Guadalajara and along the Texas-Mexico border. So she's a real pocha and true <laughs> bilingual person. She's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. She's reported extensively on the impact of organized crime, and drug violence in both countries. Her work also includes coverage of immigration, trade, and binational health issues. Angela has reported on Mexico's democratic transition by covering the last three presidential elections, and no doubt the election coming up next year. Angela is now based in El Paso, a midway point for reporting on both sides of the border. And right next to me is Alfredo Corchado, who was born in Durango, Mexico, and grew up in California and Texas. He's a graduate of the University of Texas at El Paso and a recent Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Alfredo has worked for the Dallas Morning News since 1994, and his reporting has earned him several awards, including the Maria Morse Cabot Award presented by Columbia University. In 2010, he was a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and he's currently a visiting fellow at the David Rockefeller Center at Harvard. Just 
worried I was going to get all that in. But um, <laughs> Alfredo's based in Mexico City, but calls a border home. He's currently working on his first book called Midnight in Mexico, which is based on his reporting. So... So we all live and breathe the news in Mexico, and often it is overwhelming. So it's good for all of us to be here and stop and consider what we're doing as journalists. So our task tonight, the idea of other narratives. It's a very good sort of homework topic. But the narco-violence has drowned out news of just about everything else that we do in Mexico as journalists. So this task feels a bit propagandistic, especially considering the mass graves in Tamaulipas and in Durango, when the body count grows yearly and when each massacre seems more gruesome than the last. But what, what is going on in Mexico? It didn't happen overnight. How did we have the euphoria of Pre President Vicente Fox coming into power in 2000? Fast forward 11 years to now when we have 40,000 dead because of the drug war. How did this happen so quickly? But it didn't happen, as I said, overnight. So I'd like to take two minutes with each of you and ask you to give us some context for all this. Um, how has your job changed in, in this space of time? Alfredo, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, thank you, Susana. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the uh, Azteca Foundation and Sokolov for the invitation. And I, I do want to warn you that when you listen to Susanna and she's got this beautiful, lovely English accent, it's all fake. <laughs> uh, I, when I first met her, I was very intimidated by that too. And then I saw her drink tequila and I said, it's pura chilanga. You know? uh, but that, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I, I, when I look back, I feel like uh, my job change uh, in, in, I think, one big respect, I stopped living in, in denial. When I decided to become a journalist, I told my parents that uh, you know, I wanted to someday go back to Mexico and, and be a foreign correspondent. And they said, you know, as long as you don't cover drug trafficking, that's fine. And I thought, you know, I didn't really care because having lived in El Paso, having lived on the border, um, drug trafficking was really the least interesting subject for me because it was such a uh, you know, demand in the U.S., uh, supply in Mexico, corruption, etc. But uh, I think the way it changed me, I, I think, is the way it changed Mexico. I stopped living in, in denial. I think for too long, I tried to either look the other way or maybe pretend that nothing was there or, or too afraid to look you know, underneath the surface, afraid of, of the monster that might be there. And my career really started by covering all these democratic movements in Chihuahua uh, in, the in, in the 1980s for the El Paso Herald Post, and then later in Mexico City, the Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas. The 2000 election, I thought, is kind of the culmination or the consolidation of democracy. But looking back, it was, I think it was more than anything, it was like uh, someone put in a mirror over Mexico and, or, or in front of Mexico and challenging Mexico, you know, Look at, all, look at all your imperfections, the corruption, the uh, inequality, uh, the neglect over the years, the, 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 the myth or truth of the fatalism that we allegedly have, according to Octavio Paz. And it was kind of like asking Mexicans, uh, is this what you want? How do you fix this? How do you change that? Or do you want to live with the appearance? 
And I think that, to me, that's, this is really what Mexico is going through. It's trying to define itself, trying to uh, find its democ democratic soul. On another level, this is the biggest crisis in Mexico, maybe since the 1910 revolution. When I started uh, in the 90s, we had a, a bureau of 13 people. We're now down to one, and that's me, and I'm in L.A. right now. Uh, <laughs> so I have my you know, fingers crossed. So it's the biggest story, and yet you have one person trying to cover this. Uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in the narratives because, I mean, I do, uh, I think 85, 90 percent of the time, I'm trying to cover something else, but the story just keeps going to a different level. Well, thank you very much. Angela? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd also like to thank the uh, Zocalo, uh, Grupo Salinas, and of course, Susana, for organizing this event, and all of you, because it really is an important conversation, and, and look forward to hearing some of your, your questions. Um, I'll backtrack a little bit and just say um, I was also based in Mexico City for many years, and, and my company decided to relocate me to the border around 2006 to cover immigration and border security, of course, after 9-11. Um, they put me El Paso Juarez, um, Midway point, a uh, year later, Juarez exploded in violence and really became the, the big story. Um, it's, it's been interesting. A, a friend of mine who worked at the, the San Diego Union Tribune told me we're local foreign correspondents because we're based there. We're seeing it firsthand. We're not like war correspondents who come in and come out into some strange country. It's really the war next door. And I find myself going into Mexico's murder capital on a regular basis to, to report on, on these devastating stories and watching this deterioration day by day, and yet coming home to a place like El Paso, one of the safest cities in the United States. And so it's a very strange way to live your life and, and to know people firsthand personally and not just, it's not just another story. Um, it's, it's really, Become a, we try and look for those other stories. I would love to go back to the days when we could report on you know, culture and travel and you know, trade, but this violence and, and organized crime has is, is become an aspect of, of everyday life, in, whether it's the economy along the border, whether it's immigration routes being controlled by these, these criminal groups or you know, charity groups not going into Mexico, or students that no longer can go to Mexico, or people fleeing. That's the big story and one that's disturbing you know, boom towns on the US side and uh, brain drain in Mexico. So I think uh, you know, we long for that day when we can go back to, to those other narratives. But for now, unfortunately, it's overshadowed a lot of our coverage. Yeah, Reed. I know you've, you've been out of Mexico now since 2008, but um, you know, what's your impression living here, and how, how has your perception of Mexico changed um, since you left in 2008? Sure. Well, um, again, to thank all of you and to thank Zocalo for inviting us here and Susanna for organizing this. Um, I started in Mexico in 2004, and at that time, the Los Angeles Times, normally our bureau is two people, and they mostly have their hands full covering politics and a little bit of economics and that kind of thing. But we wanted to add two more reporters because Mexico, for obvious reasons, is such an important country for Los Angeles. And so they added me to cover arts and culture and my wife, who's also a reporter, um, to cover economics. And the idea was to try to do you know, a variety of stories, um, stories that just are, are normally our, our people there don't have time to cover. And it was a, 2004 was really, I think, in some ways a time of optimism in Mexico because the first election, you know, first undisputed um, election of Vicente Fox in 2000, 
had signaled to people that there was no longer going to be you know, one-party rule, essentially. The papers were getting more liberal, they were getting more courageous, they were printing a lot more across the board, all kinds of stories. Um, there were, as if, if any of you go to hear Jorge Castaneda at the Skirball uh, in a couple of days, I'm sure he'll be talking about this because it's in his new book, that it was a period um, when Mexico really began to establish the makings of a middle class of some, you know, some substantial size. All those things were new. And the climate then, by the time we left, you know, the violence really started, as we all know, um, in 2006, after Calderón got elected president. And there were already, the, the violence was starting to rash it up. And I think not only the, the scale of the crimes, but the nature of the crimes, the beheadings, you know, the rolling hand grenades into nightclubs. The, 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 the adage was always in Mexico that if you got involved in narcotics violence, somehow you were connected to it. That was what people told themselves. That was the rationalization. And, and that myth, uh, I think, and it was to, to some extent a myth, began to explode at a certain point because there were, the, ki- the killings were random. And, and people, um, quote, innocent people, you know, uh, indisputably innocent people were getting, getting slaughtered. Um, what I tried to do, you know, in writing about culture was to... Um, I think in, throughout Latin America and, and in many parts of the world, there is more of a direct connection between culture and politics, a lot more of the art in places like Mexico or in places like um, Brazil or Chile has to do with politics, the literature, the music, everything. And I wrote stories about a group of artists in Sinaloa, in Culiacan, um, you know, who were trying to make painting, make photography that addressed you know, the pervasive narcotics culture there. Um, I wrote a story about a guy who had the guts to actually be writing some plays um, about, you know, the drug trafficking. Some of them were, um, you know, kind of uh, disguised a bit metaphorically. He had a play that was, I think, called Amex, as in an American Express card, you know, essentially making the point that all of this is kind of an economic transaction that works its way up to the highest levels of government and of corporate complicity and so forth. So there was always that theme present, you know, in the culture that I was reporting on. But I think after a while, um, with the, as, as my colleagues are saying, um, you know, that story began to just overshadow everything and kind of overwhelm it and um, make me question about, you know, what am I doing here writing about culture, you know, given, um, you know, the serious nature of the problems. And um, as, 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 as we were saying, too, I mean, um, this happened to dovetail with a scaling back by American media covering it. Um, and there are people now, you know, writing blogs. There's a guy at the border who does some amazing uh, posts. You know, he's an independent journalist, uh, posts video that uh, implicates the police, you know, in some of the crimes that are happening. But, you know, those people are, are, are getting fewer and fewer, uh, uh, you know, farther and farther between. And... Um, you know, now I'm not sure how you would write about culture uh, in, in Mexico, but I think it's essential to keep writing about those things, too, because, as, as we've all been saying, um, there are those other stories, and they're very important, and we get a very, I think, one-sided view, uh, you know, um, in this country, sort of just hammering away at that one issue all the time. I think if you were in Mexico now, you'd be writing about the narco fashion and how they like the polo, magaz- the polo right. shirts, you know, the Ralph Lauren. And, I mean, there's endless things you could write about in the, in the narcos, and it's just That's sort of, true. we can't make this stuff up, you know. It's, 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 you know, every day is something new and, and sort of surprising and shocking. So thanks very much for that. Mm-hmm. And Ana Maria, how about you? You know, uh, and, and I want to thank you all for this opportunity uh, 
Zócalo and, and Grupo Salinas for the invitation, because for me to be able to come to this forum and talk about this is kind of a catharsis, because I live with this issue every day, both on the personal level and on the professional level. Let me tell you a little about the professional level. I have a daily radio show, and I have to kind of pick every day what is going to be my news and you know how I'm going to read, the, what's going to, what we're going to start out with. And it is very, it's tough, because when I start looking at my summary, it undoubtedly starts with how many people were arrested, how many people were killed, what's going on. And, you know, the temptation is to, let's try to change this a little bit or not talk about this issue today, and then let's try to talk about something else or try to focus my interviews on something else. And, and it, it comes to a point that you can't hide from it. If I try to start my news program talking about, I don't know, some politics or political news, you know, you get a sense that you're trying to hide the reality of what's going on in Mexico, and you get accusations like, who are you trying to protect? Are you on Calderon's side? That's why don't you want to start your news program? I mean, it, for all the news shows in Mexico, the, what you put at the beginning of the show pretty much defines what is the priority, either for you as, a, as an anchor or for your media group that you represent. So if you put the really bad news about what happened in the state of Durán, where they're, you know, they're going to be reaching up to, I believe, up to 300 bodies that have been buried, uh, they can accuse you of saying, oh, you're trying to protect the government of Durango. So, I mean, it really becomes, you, you, you don't want to start out with the news, with the really bad news, but if you don't, it's kind of diminishing the reality of what's going on in Mexico, and you can't hide that. And, for example, last night, I was trying to leave some interviews behind because I, I knew I was going to travel, so I interviewed a, an exhibit at a museum. And as I was doing this interview last night, I just and I looked at what had happened in some of the states, I just go, you know, this is so frivolous. I mean, no, I, it's, this is an, a very important exhibit, and I'm sure it's marvelous, but at the same time, I'm getting tweets from the families of the ABC... Um, uh, guarderia, um, uh, daycare, center. daycare center that were killed, the 49 children that were killed. And I got, I was, they were, uh, this person was tweeting at me, why aren't you talking about that? This is going to be the second year anniversary. Who are you trying to protect? I'm getting these tweets at, you know, at midnight. So it, I live with this question every day because I have to make a decision between my daily radio show and also my TV show as to what I'm going to give a priority. Now, I do think that we've all made a big mistake. We're talking about drug trafficking, and we shouldn't be talking about drug trafficking. We should talk about violence and crime, because it's a much bigger story. This is not only about drug trafficking organizations. We're talking about organizations that are increasingly getting involved in people trafficking, because you can sell a woman 25 times a day, but you can only sell a you know, kilo of cocaine once. Uh, so that's a huge business, and we're not talking about that. Uh, we need to be talking about the kidnapping rings. We need to be talking about the extortions. This is not about drug trafficking organizations. This is much bigger. And I think that's where the story is getting lost, that we're just focusing on drug trafficking because that is what the United States is concerned about, the drugs from Mexico going into the United States. What those of us who live in Mexico need to worry about is violence. And that changes your perspective enormously, and we can maybe talk about that in terms of what should be the public policy to deal with the violence and crime issues. I think that's so, a very good point, especially after Mexican authorities just found 500 migrants, um, was it last 10 days ago, and I don't know if you saw this, but they were in two trailer trucks, and there was x-ray of them, mm -hmm. and, and that was all over 
you know, right. all the headlines. Or the 72 uh, but migrants that were found dead, that has yes. nothing to do but with But what about drugs. the ones that are not being found, the ones exactly. that are, you know, dead and buried somewhere and they won't be discovered? Um, there's total impunity. So, so, so I think we need to be talking about this beyond drugs. And the second, that's how I'm more on the professional. So I live with this every day. In my TV show, it's about security issues, but interestingly enough, I try not to talk about drug trafficking. I talked, you know, I talk about, which is the other big story, is violence against women, which has skyrocketed. And, 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 and it, it is related to all these other phenomena, but nobody's talking about that. I mean, it kind of got lost. Ciudad Juarez, Las Muertas de Juarez. We're not talking about that anymore. Well, guess what? We've got Las Muertas of the state of Mexico that we're not talking about because we're all caught up in, in these drug trafficking stories. So I live with this every day. That's on the professional side. On the personal side, when I have to go home, and you know, and I have all this information of what's going on. You know, you do, I'm, you know, I'm scared. You know, I am scared. I'm scared for my kids. I'd like kids. to get onto that actually yeah. before we we go on to you know the stories that we're not doing. What are the stories that we're ignoring? You know, as Mr. Haider from Tebasteca just said, you know, the Mexican economy has grown five percent, and how is that possible amidst the, this drug violence? But before we get into that and all those stories, um, like how we have 22 million tourists per year, and there's you know, plenty of good things going on in Mexico. But before we get on to that, I'd like to ask each one of you, in a 30-second soundbite or less, um, <laughs> was there a particular incident or a story you wrote, or perhaps a death threat, that changed you as a person and changed you as a journalist and changed your perception to Mexico? Alfredo? Okay, uh, 30 seconds. Yes. Uh, there's, been, there's been a few incidents. I, I, I think the third one really changed me because I think the, the, it, it, was a, it was a threat or it was a message that I took as a threat because of who it was coming from and it was a high-level official in, in, within the Mexican government. And that told me that this war, whether you want to call it drug trafficking or organized crime, whatever it is, was, it wasn't, you know, this... Uh, all these thugs versus the government, it was really much a war within, and that changed me. And you had to leave Mexico for a while, is that right? I mean, we'll give Elaborate. you more than 30 seconds, because okay. you know, I think it's worth it, the <laughs> story. It was but, a, um, I, I ended up uh, applying for a fellowship, and that's the reason I left Mexico, and, and came back, I mean, if you give me 30 seconds more, I came back a year later, and I came back determined not to touch that story anymore. You know, after all, if you, if you listen to the government, if you listen to Calderon, 90% of the people killed were involved or associated with drug trafficking. But it was an incident in, in Ciudad Juarez, uh, December, uh, January 31st, 2010, a birthday party. And, and these were teens, students, you know, with aspirations, with dreams who were killed because they had the wrong information, because the killers had the wrong information. And I, I walked in there, and I think that woke me up. And, I, and that you know, made me realize, what are you doing? You, know, uh, you, have to, you have to tell the story, especially at a time when so many of your own colleagues in Mexico are, are being forced to self-censor themselves. There are regions in Mexico now that, that are silent, where people are too scared, or they, or they have death threats. And I thought, you know, it's, it's, there's no other time when it's more important to be a journalist than, than today and no other time when it's more dangerous than it is today. Thanks. Thank you for the 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. two, two stories um, that are kind of 
connected, um, covered a series of killings, mass uh, killings at rehab centers um, in Juarez. Yeah. When we say drug rehab centers, we're not talking about, you know, the nice ones where the movie stars go out here. We're talking about very low-end places where people try and go, and, and a lot of them are previously involved in this kind of life. In one, I remember standing, and I'm sorry to be so graphic, but um, in just there was so much blood and looking down and thinking, oh my God, at the moment you don't realize it, and then thinking about it and seeing it and taking those shoes when I got home and throwing them away. A few months later, another killing, 14-year-old boy, um, I interviewed one of his brothers had been killed at a rehab center and then came to find out he had another brother who had been killed um, just a few months earlier. Most of the children in that neighborhood, and some were, were children, were um, had at least known one person who had been murdered, whether it's a sibling, a parent, a neighbor. So just overwhelmingly um, devastated by this and, and went back months later to try and follow up, which is where we do tend to fail. We don't go back and check and see what happened. Most of the young, young boys in that neighborhood had left. Their parents had sent them away for security reasons or, and the town, that little area was pretty much deserted. Thanks. I, I wouldn't say there was one incident. It, it, was, a, it was a continual process. And, and to spin your question a little bit differently, of not changing my relationship to Mexico so much as perceiving my um, contribution as an American vis-a-vis -vis Mexico and the problems that it has. And part of that was you, Mexican people will say to you, well, why don't you guys report about what happens when the drugs get to the other side of the border? How come we're always reading about busts down here? Who's, who's getting those drugs? There must be corrupt customs agents, narcotics agents, you know, in, on, the, on the, the California side, you know, across from Tijuana. Why don't you report on that? Um, talking with, uh, I remember interviewing a director who also was an academic, who was an expert in drug policy. This happened to be in Colombia, but the same could apply to Mexico who was telling me that it is, and, and I, you know, I hope there's no one here from the Peace Corps, but it is an article of faith among Colombians, according to him, that the drug problems in Colombia began when Peace Corps volunteers from the United States came there and started to use drugs and traffic in drugs. I have no way of proving whether it's true or not, but it signaled to me that kind of perceptual gulf. You know, and, and the part of this, we were talking a bit about this backstage, you know, the, the theme of the program tonight is telling Mexico stories. More and more, when we talk about Mexico stories, we're also talking about the story of the United States. Right. And not just in California, not just in Texas and Arizona, but across the United States. Because the Latino population of the United States was the fastest growing. It's growing in states like North Carolina, it's growing in Iowa, it's growing everywhere. So we have to talk about our own role in this and, you know, about where those, who's buying those drugs, you know, in this country and who's sending those illegal arms you know, to Mexico so that the Mexican police you know, are completely uh, you know, outnumbered and, and out, outgunned by, um, by the narcos because that illegal arms you know, trade is coming in from the US. And I know that the NRA and other groups have attempted to demonstrate that this isn't so, that you know, most of those arms are not coming from arms dealers. I mean, I've done my own research and tried to read about it. I, I don't buy it. You know, I think, I think, you know, there is a direct relationship. But if you bring up a very what, good point. That's about what we need to be talking the about. The shared yeah. responsibility and Hillary Clinton spoken about this. Mm -hmm. And this is you know, a huge disconnect if, if um, you know, a Coke user in New York could see the bloodshed in Juarez, you know, maybe it would be a bit different, but that's not happening and will it ever happen? So thanks for that. And Anna Maria? There's been a couple events. Uh, some of it has to do with my um, 
with my work on the radio show and the TV show, and some of it just has to do with the daily living in Mexico. I was the last person to interview Felix Batista, who disappeared. He was an American, Cuban-American, who was working on security issues, and he spoke, he gave, a, he gave me an extraordinary interview for my TV show, Seguridad Total, what to do, how to prevent not becoming a kidnapped victim and what to do once you've been kidnapped, and then he disappeared, and they still haven't found his body. Wow. Uh, so that was, that was tough. And then we, I also interviewed a woman who was pretty much a slave of the Setas groups, and she described every day how she would cook for them, and then she would feed these migrants that the Setas had kidnapped, and then she could see on a daily basis how they would disappear, and, and how some of them would disappear, and then some of them would be released, and then these guys would come home with blood all over, all over there, and she had to wash, wash their clothes. So that was kind of just gave... And this was an interview we did a year ago, I mean, this was just kind of a prefix of what we knew, what was happening, and you know, and, and you know it as a journalist, and you just don't know how to say, come, we got look at this. This other story of this woman in Durango who works with uh, women, she told me, you know, young girls in Durango don't want to get out, don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to go to school anymore. And they, they're in secondary, and they don't want to go to school. And I go, why? They're scared because people are disappearing in Durango. She gave me this information like seven months ago, and I didn't do anything about it. And that, now they're finding all these bodies being buried. So there's all these tidbits of stories that is telling you that there's something horrible going on, and you kind of assimilate, and you're like... I don't understand, or maybe I don't want to understand. So that's kind of on the on the personal, on the professional, on the personal level. What really hit me was when my daughter asked me, you know, what is a robachico? And you sh they're starting to ask questions, and and she's scared because as I watch news, you know, she's listening to the news too, and I just look at my four-year-old. This is four-year-old daughter, and I know that there's just this generation of Mexicans, children that are growing up listening to the news and watching what's going around on them. And they're scared. I mean, and you know, so we have this, how are, you know, I'm thinking, of, how am I going to deal with my child uh, towards the future? And, and what does this mean for Mexico in, in terms of this, this generation? So that's, those, are, those are two or three. Well, thank you very, very much, all of you, for that. So Mexico is changing very rapidly. Sometimes I feel that, you know, we really, A, can't keep up with the breaking news that's coming out of Mexico. But B, how do you take it all in and how... How can you hear of like 40,000 dead and how does that mean anything and how can you put it into context? Um, but I do want to get into the topic of are we ignoring other stories um, such as the economic growth and you know, what's an important part of this bigger drug story that we're failing to report and what are the, you know, what are the biggest cliches and what are the errors and the mistakes that we're making in all of this? Um, any takers? Uh, I mean, I, I'd like to hear from the audience as to what the mistakes are, but um, I mean, Mexico is a paradox. It's, it's as you as said earlier, it's a, you know, some, some would call it a booming economy, especially in, in, in light of what's happening in the United States. Uh, it's, it is home to the richest man in the world, but I always also remind myself it's, it's home to, you know, 42% of the population still lives in poverty, and as Susana said, you do have 40,000 people killed. You do have uh, more than 250,000, according to some international organization, who, people who have fled Mexico. 28,000, 30,000 businesses have shut down. And if you go to Monterey, I mean, <clears throat> Ciudad Juarez for the, for the longest time it has been the epicenter of violence, as Angela said. Um, I just read this morning that Monterrey now had more killings uh, the, the month of May than Juarez. So it's, you know, it, it, it just keeps moving. 
So you know, you have to put it in perspective. Obviously, if I still had a bureau of 13 people, I, uh, I think we would look at Mexico, you know, broaden our coverage, but still look at through the prism of, 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 of what's going on today. It's actually a very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. It's called The Mexican Paradox. And one of the examples um, mentioned there was uh, there are 3,000 dead in Juarez last year, yet 20,000 jobs were created in the Maquilas. How, how can we get our head around that? They lost 90,000 jobs. Okay, so it's not all been reported. <laughs> it's, it's just okay. it's a slower recovery. Mm -hmm. And, and Maquilas security has become a bigger portion of what they're paying to, to remain in Mexico. Maquilas are the factories that operate in Mexico. So uh, I talked to an executive uh, last year at a border conference, and he said it is affecting, their, they, people don't want to work the night shift in Reynosa. Um, we interviewed a worker who said, you know, her legs tremble when she goes to work because the blockades are not police checkpoints. They're drug traffickers controlling the streets. And they, you know, you know, these multinational corporations do know how to operate in very dangerous places. Right now, they're taking a wait-and-see attitude, and I, I think, you know, that is a positive part. The economy has, has started to boom. The other big thing, tourism. Um, yeah, people are still going to Mexico, but I know a lot of people are afraid to go. Um, we get stories, can I still have my wedding in Cancun? I mean, callers asking. So, yeah, we're trying to tell a, a bigger picture. Not every part of Mexico right. is drowning in blood, and, not, and the, you know, tourists aren't being gunned down on the beaches. Um, Acapulco, be a little more careful. That, that's a different story. But in general, you know, a lot of these destinations are still perfectly safe for tourists in those areas. Yeah. Ana Maria? Like, well, you know, there's, there's a couple areas I, that I think we're underreporting, and I think we need to pay more attention. I mean, there's so many acts of air heroism in Mexico that we don't highlight. I mean, you know, for, for a kid in Juarez to go play soccer in some of these places, it's an act of heroism. Because they, you know, there's been so many of these killings taking place in kind of these these communal soccer uh, soccer areas. Or this teacher, I don't know if you've seen this video of this teacher in 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 Nuevo León, where there was a shootout, and she very calmly told the kids to go down, and they were singing a Barney song, and it was a way of calming. It's, it's it's extraordinary, but it is such acts of heroism that and, and acts of heroism by the military and and cops. I mean, there's it it is it's. It's extraordinary that we're not highlighting that because it is, it, is, it, it is incredible. And there's what I think is a fascinating story that we really haven't been able to grip is that there's still a lot of Americans who are moving to Mexico to retire. Well, and a, million, I think that's a million Mexicans a, living in Mexico and, quite happily, you know. And, 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 and that is because that tells you the other side, and they're the ones that go out and defend Mexico. There, there is, that is absolutely true. Mexico is kind of covered with blood in the way we're portrayed in the media. And the problem is very local. I mean, there is, you know, there are places that are as safe, like, you know, Yucatan and, and some of these beach areas and, and different parts in, in kind of the center that are safe as it can be. And the Americans are wanting to spend, you know, they take their money, they go to Mexico, and they know they're going to die in Mexico. That's where they're going to spend the last years of their life. But so die happily, you mean in retirement? Yeah, natural causes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Susana. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. God. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> no, but it is the communities, these communities are extraordinary. And it tells you, which kind of brings you back to one of these themes, is that the interests that the United States has, it is in Mexico where you have the largest community of Americans living. You know, uh, you know, it's there's the United States, and then there's Mexico. So I think that's another very important story. Now, the economy story, I think, is very interesting, because like Alfredo said, I mean, there's a lot of good news, but 
And then you kind of look into the good news and you can debate as to whether how good it is or not. And the same thing with tourism. A lot of people are still traveling to Mexico, but... 22 so, million just last year, so... But, Many but, are yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. but, so there's a, but I, there is a lot of things that we're not talking about, and we just need to find the way to get away from this narco stores and the violence and kind of look a little bit beyond. And Reid, what's your perception here from LA? What are the stories you wish you could be doing back in Mexico right now? Yeah. <clears throat> well, there's, there's a couple um, that um, I've been meaning to do for a while, but, you know, thank God for, for artists and culture because they you know, can sort of help us sometimes to, to begin to grapple with things that are, you know, it's almost too bleak or difficult. Um, very close from here, two and a half hours down in Tijuana, there's a group of artists who are actually finding ways to address, you know, what's going on. In Tijuana, it's been fairly quiet recently, but they've, you know, had terrible violence breaking out there. Um, there's a, a new museum that opened about two years ago. Maybe some of you have been down there and could tell me about it. I still haven't made it down there, called uh, Casa del Tunnel. And it's a, it's a tunnel that was used by the narcos to smuggle drugs under the border. You may know there are networks, apparently, of tunnels you know, all along the U.S. border that have been used for this purpose and to smuggle immigrants as well. And um, a group of people got together and said, this is a great space, you know, and so they bought the house and they're using, you know, the tunnel underneath for exhibition space and have done a series of exhibitions, you know, dealing with mixed media and that kind of thing. Um, it's a new project. It's getting some backing from the city of Los Angeles and uh, I think from the Cultural Affairs Department. Um, also down in, in Tijuana, I'm sure some of you know, there's been a, a very, um, it, it's, it's a real hotbed of art and the aesthetic has been a kind of do-it-yourselfer, you know, essentially kind of taking a lot of the, you know, the, the cast-offs and the, you know, the refuse from both sides of the border and turning that into art. And there's also been a very dynamic electronic music scene in Tijuana and um, has produced, you know, artists who now tour all over the world. And one of the things they've begun to do is the tourist bars along Revolucion and the main, you know, the main kind of tourist drags, the tourists aren't coming. So a lot of these artists are going back now to these bars that have been sort of vacated by us gringos, and they're using them now to kind of reconnect with each other and do new projects and, you know, have, have mashups and have, you know, all-night music parties. And, and that's, you know, I mean, it would be obviously absurd and kind of foolish to, you know, set that alongside, you know, the, the body count and the, you know, terrible cost. But it is one way, I think, of opening a window into you know, these issues and beginning to be able to talk about them. And I know, you know some of these artists and have interviewed them before. You know, these are people who deal with these things in their art, maybe not directly or head on, but in a way that you know, gives us another frame of reference, another, you know, another language. So the idea that you know, we, still have, we still live in Mexico and that mm -hmm. we enjoy life, many of us, and, and you know, it's not all gloom and doom and it's not all murder and mayhem. Well, and I think that's a very important point. Well, and well, I like to mm -hmm. talk a bit about the role of civil society and how you know, out of tragedy, uh, this big movement, um, hopeful movement in Mexico is being born after the death of Javier Sicilia. I'm not sure if all of you have heard of him, but um, his son was killed in Cuernavaca, which is just an hour south of Mexico City. And this just happened two months ago. And he started a movement, um, and, you know, hopefully it'll take off. And he's marching, well, in a caravan. I think they're driving up to Juarez. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for Mexico? Is it a new hope for Mexico? Um, it's sort of like a tipping point. Will enough people get behind his movement 
and will the mentality change? Because at the, in the end of, at the end of the day, you know, we need to have better institutions. We need, um, you know, rule of law. And, you know, Mexico is famous for its lawless roads. Graham Greene wrote about it, you know, years ago. So where is this all going? And, um, you know, is there hope? I mean, can we, can we write about that um, in a different way? Um, can we write... It's, it's still related to the drug war, but is there part of this bigger movement that we're failing to report? I, I mean, I, I think... Uh that is really the, the bigger story. Uh, I, I think anyone who, who's, who's covered Mexico for a while will tell you that it, it, in the end it comes down to a civil society and rule of law. And it, it'll be fascinating you know, to see next week Cecilia in Ciudad Juarez, uh, a city that really has been going through this for you know, the last 25, 26 years since the whole PAN movement started. You know, they've been trying to build a civil society. And as Ana Maria was saying, I mean, you, you have so many NGOs in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, Mexicans have a, such a resilient spirit that you can't walk away and not feel anything but hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, there is hope. Uh, but it, in the end, it's going to come down to what, you know, what kind of country do they want to build? You have elections in a year. Do, do they, do they want to do something different, go back to the, the, the old system? or keep marching. I mean, that's really what I think the next you know, few months are going to determine. And you know, enough people gather behind Javier Cecilia. I mean, he's a poet and he's a writer. Um, you know, he talks about his heart being mutilated and not wanting to write poetry ever again after his son was killed, but yet he's leading this movement. He, he I, talks about sharing, sharing your yeah. pain, you know, mm-hmm. basically share, you know, getting the country to share the pain and trying to get the United States to share the same pain that, uh, that Mexico's I'm, I'm going through. I'm much more pessimistic about... I mean, I think the Javier Sicilia movement is just one more expression that I don't think it's going to be the tipping point. I think in part because Javier Sicilia... It's interesting because there has been marches even larger than the Javier Sicilia uh, movement uh, in the past. Uh, and it hasn't, it hasn't created the sufficient political pressure in order for the Mexican political class uh, and economic uh, elite to take on the necessary steps to, to seek change. I think it is an important reflection of what's going on because it brought out people who had never gone out, you know, intellectuals, artists, uh, who are, are very public. But I don't think it's sufficient. I think it, it's, it's an important and I, it's an important aspect. Now, what is going to change Mexico and why I have hope? Because we've seen changes. Colombia is an example. I know Colombia very well. I lived in Colombia from 1990 to 1995. And I can tell you kind of where there was, what had to happen in order to have this catalyst. Uh, and civil society is, is, is fundamental. Uh, but I do think at one point we're going to see, particularly in the economic class, the economic elite, playing a much more important role in trying to make the change necessary. And where like, is where that is economic Carlos, elite? For, let, me, like, let me just mm-hmm. ask this question. Where's Carlos Slim? Mm-hmm. Where's the Catholic Church? Where are some of the major NGOs? So where, I mean, there's not that coalition that is required for the type of change we need to see. But it's going to happen. It's just going to take a little bit more time. So than should expected. we as journalists be covering the monopolies in Mexico? I mean, the monopolies in Mexico are extremely powerful. Um, you know, not just Telmex or Televisa or even TV Azteca who helped us get, 
get us all here today. Um, <laughs> but, you know, should we be going after these monopolies in a stronger way as, as journalists, putting more pressure on them to say, hey, where are you? 40,000 people have died. Are you going to take a more active role in what's going on in Mexico? I mean, what can we do as journalists? I just want to say one thing about the, the caravan of peace next week is you are going to have participation from both sides of the border. Right. And I think that's been the missing the voice that's in this, you know, people from the U.S. also reaching out to neighbors across the border and poets from both sides and writers, but just ordinary families, too. I know he's the figurehead. And I think it's the evolution of democracy where it's not tied to a political party, but really true participation. Does it have to grow and widen and broaden? Yes, but I really think it is a, a big sign of hope. Well, let's hope so. I, I do think the point about rule of law, though, is, is, is crucial here as well. And, and, yeah. and going along with what um, Ana Maria said, you know, I mean, in some ways, I mean, we were talking about it before. Um, Mexico has demonstrations, manifestaciones about everything. And, Every and this is sort of the season for it in Mexico City. The farmers come, the teachers come. You know, there, there's the naked farmers. The naked farmers come. And, and so it's a way, in some ways, of containing dissent you know, within the society to let people go out and march. It can be powerful, but, but what would be much more powerful is to, you know, implement, and, and Mexico now has begun at least to make um, sort of gestures toward having more trials by jury. As we know, most trials are by judges where the judge has all the power. The Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize in 2002 or three for a series about corruption in the Mexican judicial system, including the prisons, including the courts. It's excellent. I would you know, recommend it very much, even though it's now you know, almost 10 years old for anybody. Um, I don't know that it really changed a thing, um, partly because it was mostly seen by readers of the Washington Post and not in Mexico, but it, but it detailed you know, the problems there. I mean, yeah. there have been incidents of narco um, you know, comandantes running, continuing to run their drug operations out of jail. Because if you have enough money, you can get you know, the jailers to look the other ways, and you can get the same way that you can get a color TV set installed or prostitutes So really in. the story mm -hmm. it hasn't really changed much. It's just... It's just got bigger, because there's an anti-drug war star, um, Gutierrez Rebollo, who was in his job for nine months, I think right. in the mid-90s, and he was in cahoots with the big drug lords. So that was before President Fox and before the pan came in. So it's just something that's exploded. You know, uh -huh. it, you can't understand the changes in Colombia without looking at the role the media played. The media played a fundamental role in promoting change and pressuring the government. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're doing that yet in Mexico. And in part it has to do, it's because it's very difficult to do reporting. But there was a recent pact that was signed by many media right. owners, which you know, has its pros and its cons. Um, right. It's one of, the, one of the, the big issues there was not to show as much violence right. on, on Mexican television. I think that's a good point. You don't want gratuitous violence no, on that, the television that, that, every no, day. That, that was, mm -hmm. It goes beyond that. It's mm -hmm. how you reflect these organizations. You need to talk about the violence but the way you portray it on TV, because, the, because I know I was reading about the pact and we, because there's been a lot of criticism, it's not that you're censoring yourself, it's just that as you inform, you're not gonna put the mantas where they're showing uh, you know, the, the fight between the cartels, you're not gonna show the beheaded heads. You do have to report that there was five heads in the disco floor, right, right. but you're not gonna be showing the blood. I mean, there's trying to control right. a little bit, at least visually, what you see. But it's but, but, not gonna change the self-censorship exactly. that's going on now to survive many exactly. parts of Mexico, exactly. journalists can't report because they'll be killed and kidnapped or forced and into silence. I mean, so I that, you, that's if, not going to be dealt with with a yeah. If you really want to help journalists, you have, you have to train them well and you have to pay them more so that they're not vulnerable to 
you know, cop was coming there and saying, you know, here's this money or shut up or we'll kill you. you know? And you have to protect them. I mean, at the right. end of the day, it's going to have to be some kind of way of reporting what's going on. Because I'm convinced we're not reporting 80% of the violence going on in Mexico. And, and this is just Ana Maria Salazar. And let alone and the other stories that we're meant to be doing and finding right. in environmental stories, for instance. Uh, hi, my name is Leon Older and I'm... I'm very upset because there's so many really important things that you didn't even mention or steered away from. But I'd like to bring up something that I hope you won't find irrelevant because I think it's something that we in the audience might be able to do something about. Over the years, Sokolo has blessed us with many uh, editors or chief executives from the Times speaking to us about how the Times corporation management has reduced the number of reporters again and again, cut back on the number of field reporters and foreign reporters as you've experienced. And I see personally that I, there are many very good reporters and columnists working for the Times and really clearly biased, suppressive editorial policies from the Times management. Is there anything that we mere subscribers can do to make the Times stop censoring stories. I know lots of stories that even little regional newspapers are printing and the Times is not. And, and they're obviously not supporting the, the journalists. So what can we do? Gosh, um, please keep your subscription. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ways to address that. You may not believe me, sir, but trust me. I mean, there is no conscious censorship you know, in the LA Times, at any newspaper I've ever worked with, absolutely none. Nobody says, don't write that. Nobody says, write it a different way because we disagree with you. I, I mean, I, I hope you'll believe me. It's the God's truth. But basically, you know, we're contending, as all of us have been saying, you know, with these cutbacks. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it's papers all over the world. If you read other, you know, if you read El País out of Spain, if you read Reforma out of Mexico, if you read The Guardian or The Daily Telegraph, you know, they're all doing the same thing. They're using more freelancers. You know, some of those people are excellent, courageous. They also shoot video, they blog, they do all kinds of things. They don't have as much experience and they don't get as much protection and backing because they don't have, you know, a, a professional corporation or organization with big pockets behind them like the BBC, deep pockets. Um, what, I'm sorry, I'm not answering your question. Write letters, sure. Get on, leave comments, you know, on the blog. Say, you know, this story about Mexico was pretty good, but, but you know, it was kind of missing, you know, this or, you know, the story that Reed Johnson wrote, um, you know, it was okay, but I sort of would like more perspective or more voices in here. What about, you know, bringing back somebody to whatever? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, tell us what you think, I guess the thing is, but we hope you'll keep reading us, you know, because, I mean, that's how, you know, we're, we're one of um, a number of sources now, but I think we need that interaction. And the good thing about digital technology is now there are more avenues for that, you know, for us to engage. So I, I hope you will. My name is David Diaz. I'm going to ask a question about the upcoming presidential election. With my reflections of the last one, I was fortunate to be one of the few people that was both at the historic pro-immigrant mobilizations here in Los Angeles, but I was even more fortunate to be in both exhilarating uh, rallies for the <coughs> Lopez Obrador and the Zocalo. Just amazing. I felt honored just to be in the audience. And it seemed that Mexico was on the verge of a civic change, as you talked about civic culture. However, it was like a three-ring circus. 
The whole capital was immobilized. At one time, it really looked like the corruption mirrored Watergate. I think the, I personally feel the election was stolen. Oaxaca was in chaos. Some of the leaders were being assassinated right in front of the public. Uh, the the PRI had clearly dominated the election for their candidate. And the narco wars were just starting around the country. Right. They were all going together. Calderon had a really tough start. They locked him, virtually locked him out of the chamber. He tried to um, move forward a little bit, but I think he was paralyzed. Will this coming election provide opening for civic society to address the crisis that you're dealing with? The Mexican elections may be extremely boring, and that's, if you ask me right now, it looks like it's going to be really boring because it's going to be Peña Nieto. I mean, that's if you ask most analysts right now. However, we're more than a year and a half away, and a lot can happen. And what has not really been defined is two things. One, what is going to happen with the unity of the parties? And it seems that the PAN is starting to break up. There's questions as to what's going to happen with the PRI, where they're going to keep in unity. And what is fascinating, and I would say very sad, is the way the Mexican left is just destroying itself. And uh, there's, as to, there's a lot of questions as to how, whether Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is going to go and be the candidate of the left. And as, if you ask me right now, I have my doubts. I think what's going to happen is you're going to have Andres Manuel with two of the parties and Marcelo Ebrard with the PRD, which means that will just destroy the Mexican left. Uh, so once again, then you were talking about extremely boring elections, which you always kind of hope for boring elections because it's better than having this chaotic situation we had six years ago. So I, I, I would just say that even though a lot of analysts are already forecasting uh, you know, that Peña Nieto is the next president of Mexico. There's, it's, it's year, galaxies away. I mean, a lot can happen in the year and a half. So you, we still have to wait. I think we'll have a better sense by the time December comes around as to what's going to happen. And there is, you know, the, the issue of violence is going to impact the elections. And the parties are very concerned. They're figuring out ways that they can vet the candidates. And there's a big question mark, and you need to watch this. What's going to happen in Michoacán? Can you have elections in Michoacán considering the amount of violence? And, the, you know, how many of these candidates are going to be linked to La Familia or not? Up to the point that up to three days ago, they were talking about putting one candidate for the PRI, PAN, and PRD. Oh, my God. Who would have thought these three would sit at the table? So there's a lot that's still going to happen. The division within the parties, who's going to be the candidates, and the issue of violence. There's going to be some parts of the country that I'm not too sure they're going to be able to have elections. And will the next president continue President Felipe Calderon's war on drugs? And, you know, what will happen if the military is removed from Juarez and Reynosa? You know, what's, what's going to happen in that regard? And that's a really big question mark. I, I would also re, uh, remind you that, you know, it's not just Mexico having elections, but also the United States having elections. Right. And so there's going to be a lot of funny stuff happening on both sides of the border. I mean, you're already seeing that. Uh, uh, you know, Governor Perry said recently that uh, there were bombs in El Paso. Uh, you know, I, as Angela said, it's one of the safest cities in, in, in the United States. I mean, the only thing we're seeing is an exodus of, of the middle class uh, and the elite coming across. No bombs. Uh, in, in Juarez, uh, President Calderon was here a couple of weeks ago and said there's a 60% crime reduction, and I looked at that and I go, you know, what's he talking about? Yeah. Uh, and, and he was comparing the highest number uh, of, of killings, which was last October, to the lowest numbers of killings, which was in April. So you make that comparison, yes, it's a 60%, but it's, you know, in reality, the, the, the murder rate still continues pretty much unchanged. So 
again, as a reporter and as a reader, as a viewer, you know, be careful. I mean, watch for that because it is going to be a funny, funny year, I think. Absolutely. Although, personally, when I heard that, I said, oh, the murder rate is 60% down. That's good because I have to go to Juarez very soon, so I'll feel safer. <laughs> but the last time you know? I saw Susana, the first time I met her, she had a bodyguard from, the, from, from London, well, we'll the BBC. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. You know, I've worked with mostly international networks, and, you know, I've been very privileged, but it's not the case for, um, you know, my fellow, my, my colleagues in, in Juarez or places like Reynosa where, you know, every day for them is, is a big question mark. Will they come home alive? And, you know, how, how can, you know, we have, you know, wonderful people in Mexico and dedicated journalists. Okay, some maybe have been bought off by the narcos, you know, that's a gray area, but... Um, that's something that, you know, that really breaks your heart, you know, to, to not to be able to do what, what you love to do and what you, your job, because it's so dangerous. So I just like to highlight that, you know, and, um, and I know that journalists, we love to talk about ourselves, but, and our profession, and we tend to sort of, you know, waffle on, but um, that is something, it's an issue that's, that's really, you know, Personally, it worries me a lot, and not so much from, for the international correspondents. We've been very lucky so far, mm -hmm. but um, you know, for for our colleagues in Juarez and, and places like that. In Tamaulipas, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Juarez is. I think I think there's other parts of Mexico that are much, 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 for much journalists. more dangerous for journalists than, yeah. than Juarez right now. And which is why we need to keep telling these stories right. and, and bringing this to light uh, because they cannot for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. what, one of the most dedicated people to this issue was a guy named Felix uh, Blancornelas. Yeah who published uh, an independent paper called Zeta in Tijuana. And, and I mean, this is sort of what's entailed. If you're going to do this, you can't just write about this every now and then. I mean, he dedicated his life. His, his managing editor was killed by narcotics. I, he'd had at least two or three attempts on his life. He just passed away about two or three years ago. And a bunch of us from the LA Times went down in 2004 to visit him. And he was going to meet us in a hotel that morning and at the last minute he canceled and said this is you know it's just too dangerous i can't go out so we went to him and he lived in a compound this is the editor of a paper mind you and he had armed guards outside and i'm sure the compound may still be there and they're still publishing and um you know it was like a bunker and and we met him inside it's sort of an inner sanctum that was padded you know with i can't remember whether it was concrete walls or what you know, that's what it takes to really write the truth, you know, about what's going on in the narcotics wars and to do it and not get yourself killed when you're an independent, you know, publisher like that. And we've got to remember, Mexico City, I think the biggest circulation newspapers are only about 200,000. Univision is how most people get their news from television. These papers don't have national circulation. You can't buy Reforma in Tijuana. You can't buy... Um, Universal in Ciudad Juarez, I don't believe. So, you know, you, these people are really hanging out there on a ledge, as, as everybody's saying. And, and that sprung, you know, it's mm -hmm. given space to people like the narco blog because, you know, it's too dangerous to, to write with your name, so there's all these anonymous sources of news. So it's definitely very interesting what's going on in Mexico. It's changing really rapidly, but let's take some Again, more questions. questions. Michael D. McCarty, storyteller. Two quick questions. One, where can I find out information um, in English uh, pertinent to things that are going on in Mexico? And two, who are these naked farmers? Oh. <laughs> you 
don't know about the naked farmers. Oh my God, they march every other week in Mexico City. And I'm talking about butt naked, not like, not you, I've, I've, they're, they just, and that's how they protest. And part of the problem is they initially did it because they knew if they walked Shock around naked, value. they would get a lot of attention. Now, we're all accustomed to it. The other day I drove right by them and I didn't even notice it. So, they, so if you're going to protest naked, you better do it once or twice because otherwise you get accustomed to it. It's hard to do a TV and, story and, about and, naked farmers. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to do that. Did you, did, how many have you done? And then, you know, it's interesting for about 30 seconds and then it's like, oh. Shoot it strategically. <laughs> you know, we've been trying to create and produce more content in English about Mexico. We started out a magazine, a political magazine, about three months ago and then it fell apart because there was a battle between the, uh, the, uh, the original um, investors. I'm probably for the, there's two ways. I'm probably the only person, I've been on, I have a radio show that's been going on for eight years now and, and you can listen to it, it, you know, we podcast and you can listen to it. But there is, and, and there is a newspaper, The News, that has been publishing for many, many years, but because of there was a change in, in, in owners, it's now basically just publishing cables. Uh, and that's about it. And there is a dearth of, you know, with the exception of what they're trying to do, uh, there's a dearth of, of, there's just a lack of information about what's going on in Mexico on a daily basis. I mean, you, I know you guys have to every day be fighting against other news around the world and, and what's going on in the United States. I think Mexico is a huge story. Uh, and there's just not enough news. There's not enough analysis. There's not enough debate as to what's going on. So we, t you know, I'm very fortunate. I have this radio station that's willing to support me. Um, and most of my audience are Mexican listeners who use me to practice their English every day. But, but there is, I think there's a need and a demand for the information. We just haven't been able to justify it in terms of economic and economics. I mean, it really comes down to trying to create new media uh, groups and they just the, the the economics of it is just doesn't work out necessarily. But, but that's out. where you come in. You can yeah. call and ask for more and say you want more and need more because the editors and news directors do respond to to those kinds of questions and. Well, he can give you one of the names. Yeah, give gonna, name. If you give me your email, I'll send you the blogs that I read okay. and and yeah, the sources that I check regularly. Yeah, start, there are a lot of starts a national movement for more international news. More on Mexico your, on your U.S. network. There is. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Peter Rich. I'm a law professor at Whittier Law School, and I run a program in Mexico City for U.S. law students that study Mexican legal innovation. We take students to the Mexican Supreme Court, where they just heard the justice, uh, justices talk about the gay rights decision, full faith and credit for other states of Mexico that are uh, where gay marriages have to be recognized. We also have students work in a, a Mexican migration department, and two of my students last year represented a political asylum applicant. So the whole idea of of this program is that there is legal innovation in Mexico. In the face of all the problems, Mexico has been, the 19th century, and still is, a center for legal innovation. And I think that's a story which not only would get Americans sort of off this constant track of nothing but violence day in, day out, not that it isn't there, but also show that there, there is another side. And also, I think, give 
people in Mexico confidence that they have a legal tradition to build on that does support the idea of rule of law. So I'd like to see something like that reported more. I mean, I teach, also I'm teaching in class in about two weeks to Mexican lawyers at the Ibero-Americana on the history of American law and how it works. Right. They're very interested in that. They want to know, what can we do? How can we incorporate common law into our system? And of course, you know, if you talk to lawyers, common law is moving towards civil law, which is really code law. Civil law is moving towards, towards common law. But, but people in Mexico are, are very interested in this, and I think people in the United States are very interested in this. So I, I'd like to see more reporting on some, some of that, that in, in the face of these problems, there is a sort of a, a legal history and a legal tradition that Mexico can draw on to you know, eventually reach that critical mass that, uh, that we'll need to, to deal with some of these things. I, I think Make we're all going to get your business your card. card. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a very good point, because um, that's what we need in Mexico. We need like, more rule of law and respect for, for the law. You know, at the end of the day, when people ask me, what is the solution for Mexico, it, there is a 10-year solution to this, and it has to do with the strengthening of institutions. And, when, and it, it's going to take a long time. It took a long time in Colombia. These type of changes don't happen from one day to another. They're trying to install oral trials. I mean, there is a lot of legal work that has to be done. And more importantly, the control of corruption, I think, is kind of probably fundamental, because you can do all these changes, but if if you don't control corruption, it's not going to be of very much use. There's a, a wonderful stories to talk about in the sense of these types of reforms. It's just going to take some time. My name is Felipe, and I'm from Sinaloa, where a lot of it began. Uh, my question has to do with the role the media has played. I've noticed that um, some of it smacks of hypocrisy, considering that I understand that we shouldn't buy La Mano Queda de Comer, but TV Azteca, Televisa, and all of them have, including Univision, they have profited immensely from narconovelas, which is their new, uh, their new genre. Uh, Univision, with, uh, they have a couple radio stations where that's all they're playing. Uh, how do you guys tackle on that, considering that you know, these media companies are profiting enormously from, from, pop, from narco pop culture? Yeah. I, I would just so say you can't keep, keep that quiet. If we, yes. it's part of culture, and, and people will—they tried to put ban narco corridos from the air. Well, kids will go online and get them. There's a whole narco cinema, um, you know, home box office type situation where they go out and buy the videos. I mean, people demand these because they say this is part of real life, and maybe these stories are invented. And but they're demanding this. But it's and, I think part and, of and it is exploitative in some sense. But it's out there, and people are going to buy it. I mean, no, no, I'm not saying it's right. I, I mean, I'm asking what's the alternative. I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying... It would be like they would try to cancel. We can't listen to hip-hop in the United States anymore because it promotes violence. I'm saying we can I mean, take just, it off the air, you know, but it's not going to go away. And I'm not saying you should put it on the air. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I think it's the larger story of how this drug war or the narco culture is seeping into everything, even our telenovelas. Yeah, no, it is. And, and it started, I mean, as you know, even before, you know, with Jesus Malverde, I mean, the whole romantic... Exacto. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, right. I mean, the, the whole romanticization of the narco lifestyle goes back to the, you know, the, the turn of the century. But, but you're right. I mean, when, when corporations start coming in and putting money into creating pop products, right. you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, it's a very tough thing. And there's some, you know, I mean, Reina del Sur, um, you know, that's based on a novel by a serious, you know, novelist. Serious, it's right. a literary property. You might make an argument for it. I could see, you know, writing a cultural perspective that made a case 
you know, that that was actually examining the pathology, you know, of individuals, the way the Godfather examined the pathology of those people. But on the other hand, you could also make the case, you know, that every time you put, you know, a, a glamorous actress up there playing, you know, the role of a narcotraficante. You know, there is a yeah. company in, uh, based in Burbank called Lieberman Productions that is actually putting together a show, well, it's not a show, but a, a series of concerts based on nothing but narco corridos. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, being from Sinaloa, and I go there quite frequently, and I've seen the, the toll that it has taken there. And, you know, we learned to, to deal with it and live with it, mm -hmm. where the gubernatorial candidates have been accused of being in the pockets, which most likely they are. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know that, you know, who it is and who's not. So it, it really pains me to see that this is happening. Again, you know, I understand mm -hmm. that media companies underwrite this you know, these projects and whatnot, but yet, you know, they are also profiting from it. So at the end, you know, it's a, you know, Rio Revuelto Ganancia de Pescadores. One interesting note, the Reino del Sur is actually an NBC production. Um, <laughs> keep that in mind. Uh, Telemundo is a subsidiary of NBC, and uh, they're actually transmitting Mexico through Televisa, but it is uh, a purchased product now. So I would also say that I think the biggest movie last year was El Infierno. Right. And you can't walk into someone's and not see Tim Books on Knuckles, which was interesting because a few years ago we were in Culiacán and <clears throat> there were writers who were complaining that they could not get in, you know, in published. someone's or yeah. publish. They're doing nar narco novelas and this, no one wanted to hear about it. Mm. But there's also much more information about these organizations than there was before. I mean, you, can, you couldn't get you know, five years ago, books written about El Chapo or these, and it's just information that, that you can now get that we couldn't have access or we couldn't even publish. I think they are news to Chilango news. Because um, for us, we all knew, no, 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 Oeste knew about it, El Debate knew about it. But I think, you know, people in Mexico say need to see El Infierno. Exactly. So they can say, oh my God, is that happening? That's, Even though yeah. people are living it every day, like you said, in other Because we are living Mexico. in a sort of cocoon a, in Mexico City where well, you know, everything is... I would say up until... Up. Just, up. Just, up until one year ago, nobody knew until Monterrey became this hellhole that has become because of the violence right now. Nobody would accept that this is what Mexico was all about. I mean, the fact that this violence is happening in Monterrey has made it much more public, and I think there's a much more conscious of what this war is all about because it's happening in Monterrey. Okay, well, thank you very much. Good. Thank you, everyone. Thank Please join us at the reception. <laughs>